movement is simply something to prepare you for those deeper mental and spiritual challenges and the stress that you put on your body and on your mind in those physical activities are immediate lessons that you can take to those deeper realms. Welcome to This Thing Called Movement, a podcast exploring the medium of movement and looking into how it has the capacity to transform not only our physical bodies, but potentially every other facet of our lives. I'm your host, Marie Janicek a movement guide here to help people find their own unique and authentic relationship to movement through creativity, curiosity, and self-expression. Join me as I dive into deep conversations with a wide variety of individuals from many different fields and backgrounds. Together, we'll gain insight into their own unique movement experiences, the transformations that resulted, and how movement has affected their lives at large. I hope these recorded conversations will inspire and empower you to find your own unique movement journey in your life, in your own way. Hey guys, so I'm very excited about the interview you are all about to tune into with Matthew Retalic, a close friend of mine that I got to meet through the fitness community while we were in a workshop together, um, attending level two with Institute of Motion. And We got into some pretty deep dives here today as we started talking about his movement journey and his definition of movement, um, including gaining a little bit more understanding around how to build an authentic practice with movement and then some of the things that are in our way when it comes to being truly present with movement. But my favorite thing that we talked about, which actually was as we were wrapping up the show, was the archetypes of the king and queen, the warrior, the magician, and the lover. I thought that was such a fantastic way to understand an appropriate lens to look at a holistic movement practice and a way to understand our own relationship to movement in that context to then make changes to create a little more harmony and balance. So uh, without any ado, uh, let's go ahead and bring on that interview with Mr. Matt Retallick.
Welcome. It's so exciting to have you. I would love for you to introduce yourself to our audience, who you are, what you do, whatever feels right to talk about. Perfect. Well, um, again, thank you for the, the awesome intro. My name's uh, Matt Ritalik. I'm from Melbourne, Australia. I'm currently living in sunny Tampa, Florida with my missus. Um, gosh, my movement journey started originally when I was, you know, 14 and not in the best of shape. And it was one of those sort of wake up moments where I decided, hey, I want to want to get out and get myself in shape and I fell in love with the process again just started you know doing basic things uh, to supplement basketball that I was uh, playing before I realized I was too short to be playing basketball so you know weight training a little bit of Pilates and I found um, sort of mixed martial arts and and kickboxing and whatnot and, and I stuck with that for a large amount of time that sort of threw me on a journey, uh, a movement journey that was was very all encompassing. I got to experience, um, you know, overseas sort of more traditional training methodologies with Thai boxing. Um, obviously, then you know, cross training in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu as well. So again, the grappling and wrestling element, and all of the the weird physical conditioning methodologies that that uh, accompany that, and. Uh, during that time, I was also studying to be an osteopath. Um, so I was going through, uh, you know, the, the health science degree and then eventually going on to specialize in, in osteopathy. So for our US listeners, it'd be more along the lines of like a physical therapist with, with a little bit more of a primary care sort of role. Um, so a lot of the work we did was in post-operative rehab, um, or at least the work that I did. Um, and then it was interesting. I, I fell in love with an American girl and uh, decided that, okay, I'm going to uproot and, and move. And it's one of those situations where this is the only country in the world where I wasn't able to practice legally in. Um, so I had to find something else to do. And so I fell back on, on what got me through college, which was personal training and exercise fears and spent another couple of years in, in the industry there, sort of living in Washington, D.C. and training out of there. And I, I got to met uh, Marie at, at Institute of Motion. And again, during that time or just before that, I finished my studies at the Gray Institute. Um, so their Fellowship of Applied Functional Science Program. And yeah, then I've, I've uh, we've moved again. We were like, okay, we're either going to live you know, close to one set of family or close to the other set of family or in a city that we've got a bit of foundation underneath us. So we thought we're in the US and we've spent all this time getting me here. Let's let's stay in Tampa and uh, and see what comes next. Woohoo. Well, I actually am, yeah. am sort of curious in some of the connecting factors and the impulses that went into some of these shifts that you just talked about, because they're pretty big shifts. Now, you did a great job of kind of explaining what the role of osteopath, is that the right word? Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's a bit of a different one because it's murky waters, essentially traditional osteopathy or Andrew Taylor Stills version of osteopathy originally was billed as almost like a, uh, I hate to explain it like this because it's, it's without the full pie. It's, it makes it sound like a bit shoddy, but essentially 
Um, originally, AT still uh, was all about physical manipulation of the body um, in a way to treat common medical ailments at the time. And, mm -hmm. you know, remembering around this time that people will be, you know, treated with lead and mercury and all this other stuff. Um, so, you know, it was at a time where, where medicine was very barbaric and often ended up uh, in, you know, killing as many of the patients as it helped. Um, so he was offering an alternative based on the musculoskeletal system and that's kind of evolve depending on the country that you're in now in countries like england and australia it's it's sort of a form of manual uh medicine along the lines of physical therapy or chiropractic uh -huh. versus in the u.s where it's more along the lines of a traditional doctor so there's actually programs now where the do programs are being absorbed into md programs so it's yeah. it's a little bit of a different pathway which is again one of the reasons why i can't practice here yeah, I actually worked with um, osteopaths when I was a kid and I was getting injured. But what brings me back to what I was interested in is why why were you interested in osteopathy? What 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 was the shift? Because you mentioned being really into basketball, right? And you're always kind of physically no. inclined. Yeah, I mean it's interesting, right? From from a from a personality perspective, I'm someone who, you know, essentially likes to help people um that's that's i feel like my primary reason for being on this earth is 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 as a helper as an assister as a connector um and you know there's nothing worse than than physical pain for a lot of people so you know i was immediately drawn to being a clinician um, as an osteopath and being able to use manual therapy to be able to help people or at least alleviate their pain or give them the strategies to be able to engage in some sort of movement-based activity without fear. Mm. Um, and it was interesting because a lot of what I worked with was post-operative um, orthopedic work as well as chronic pain. Mm. Were you already kind of experiencing a lot of circumstances where people were kind of fearful with movement? Before you went into this? Yeah. I'm someone who likes to push the envelope. I always used to, I used to make a joke all the time that, that uh, I follow mixed martial arts. I always used to make the joke. I'd prefer to hear that my missus was cheating on me than hear that George's St. Pierre was on steroids. And <laughs> the reason I say that is because, you know, I want to believe that a human can get to this physical level of just superstardom. And, you know, for someone like Georges St-Pierre, who's, who's one of the best athletes in the world, it means, you know, uh, achieving these amazing heights. But for your average person who's working a 60, 70-hour week and just wants to have a higher quality of life, it could be engaging in a fitness class or a yoga class without fear that they're going to hurt themselves or arming them with the knowledge that they can go in and do these movements and, and have a have a fun experience uh, with, with the physical activity they're choosing. Um, so it's one of those things where I've always been a person that wants to push what people think is possible. Um, I think for some reason in our society, we kind of ward ourselves in this little comfort circle of, oh, I'm happy here. This is what I guess I can do. And we never really test it. And something that I really uh, enjoyed, uh, it's probably one of the things that I miss most about being a clinician was the ability to show somebody who's in that fearful state of, oh, I can't 
Ben Ford to pick my keys up off the floor without dropping into a perfect, you know, 10 and 2 bloody hips behind knees personal trainer style squat. And oh, like that, that's what I have to do for an everyday activity. No, it's recontextualizing the movement, analyzing their biomechanics and sort of working on the psychological element as well, like redefining what they think is possible. Um, so, so that's, that's kind of where I took it with, with the fear avoidance. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating that you say that. Um, you know, I work with a lot of people, um, in my personal training work, it's actually mostly with elderly populations. I think the aggregate age of my clients is like mid sixties and seventies. <laughs> um, yeah. but they, you know, one of the things that they always tell me is like the biggest thing that I end up, um, imprinting on them is the fact that like they really can do so much more than they initially thought and that um, most of the work lies in empowering them to understand that really there's nothing that is out of their grasp uh, especially with age or especially coming back from having some sort of physiological problem whether it's you know a a fused disc or a neuropathy or an old shoulder injury and uh, I find that that belief, you know, that I'm limited um, because of X, Y, and Z, and people come up with mm. all sorts of fillers for the X, Y, and Z point in that sentence, no matter what age they are, uh, that I see is actually the most pervasive problem and like the most limiting factor to why people don't feel empowered to move. Yes. Yeah, I'll, I'll 100, 100% agree with you. Uh, on that end, you know, and it's it's interesting because, and I'd be interested to to know your thoughts on where you take this next because I feel like you've got one road that you can take there, which is okay. You know, you can do anything as long as you put the work in. But if someone's got you know a severe physical ailment, there may be some sort of restriction. You know, the that's the that's the methodology you know your extremely reductionist medical sort of side of it goes which is oh you know you've got a knee replacement you'll never squat again whereas you've got the other side which is you know okay like we can do anything however you know how how do i manage your expectations with just how much hard work it's going to be because i think from a from a personal training standpoint, what I saw a lot, particularly in the US, was everyone was one of two camps. They either sold with fear and was very, okay, like, you know, X structural limitation is going to affect you for the rest of your life and you essentially need my services to maintain consistency. Or on the other side, you've got, you can do anything and achieve anything. All it takes is this really smart methodology. And I think both are wrong because in one instance you're warding the person into a pathology and in the other instance you're not managing expectations of just how bloody hard it is to to uh, condition a human what are your thoughts on that well i i 100 agree with that i think but what I, I what i notice more and more right is I think people have to have the open perspective to understand that really whatever they want is within their reach, right? And yes, and yes there is the understanding that there's a lot that goes into achieving that, you know? And it, it doesn't have to be struggle. It doesn't have to be yes. painful. It just takes consistency, right? And you have to want it. 
And but I find that unless people even believe it's possible, they won't they won't even put in the effort. And to me, the this belief that I think even with a limitation like a structural or a physical limitation like the ones you're describing, I think there is still way more available to you than there is unavailable to you. Even in that process of maybe trying to get back to like the squat that the doctor said you can't do. And I think that is actually, for me, one of the things I I can't unsee. (laughs) It's sort of like once I've seen it, it's all I notice around me in the language of the fitness industry, of medical professionals, which I find to be incredibly frustrating, right? This was one of our first conversations together about how, you know, in many ways, the medical profession here in the United States is a huge limiter to people actually taking care of themselves because they don't, it's all through surgery and through pharmaceuticals. And those are like quick fixes that actually create a lot of other problems. um, And all you're really managing is a symptom at the time. But for me, I do give people that perspective, but like my route is to show them all the other stuff that is accessible you know, without having to zone in on that one thing that they're focused on. And I find opening their perspective to all the stuff around it that is uh, that is a potential they can access then makes it easier, right, to, to free up whatever needs to be addressed with what they came in to, to address. Yeah, 100%. And like medicine, you know, the, the, the thing that, you know, when I – often have been accused of getting on that soapbox. I, I feel like, you know, people say, oh, but, you know, it's needed. I'm like, yes, it's it's to an element, you know, surgery is needed, medicine is needed. But from, you know, if you take someone's recovery cycle, you know, from the original insult or injury all the way through to regain of maximal function, whatever that client deems as what they want as maximal function, like where does the medicine and surgery fit? And I think when you take that whole horizon into perspective and you walk a client through that, they kind of realize, okay, that that surgery surgery and the pharmaceutical element of it is actually a very small piece of the pie, but it's something that I feel someone thinks, oh, I'm going to be stuck with this uh, solution forever. And, you know, the, the, the medical profession, like you don't go through 20 years of school to, you know, not be in the position where what you do is the most important thing in the cycle, or at least you perceive as the whole cycle. <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. It can be the, the original kicker or turbocharge that really assists a client. But, you know, past that post-operative element like it's 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 minimally effective and I think yeah opening the client's eyes to that and and building a bridge over some of those limiting limiting beliefs is really important yeah 100 percent um so that's actually really fascinating to me that you you actually were in many ways a medical professional. Surprise, surprise! I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> uh, I always knew you were very intelligent, but like this explains so much. <laughs> um, so uh, I'm not. I'm, I always say I'm. I'm just. Uh, I'm very lucky to have very clever friends around me. That's about it. <laughs> so one of my uh, big questions, and actually an inspiration for this podcast, is um, the idea of like what movement really is and 
I think we can all safely say that everyone has a completely different definition of movement because it's such a multifaceted word, especially in English. So what does movement mean to you and how do you define it? Mm, so I guess movement to me has always echoed from a quote that I originally heard on an interview with Farah Sahabi, who is the, the coach of uh, TriStar in Canada, um, but he, he quoted Marcus Aurelius and it was, it was amazing. It was first you teach a man to wrestle and then you teach him philosophy. Um, and movement for me at least has always been, it's been the, I think we look at movement as like a be all and end all of everything. Physical performance as a be all and end all for anything. And I looked at it that way for a very long time being, you know, an amateur MMA athlete and, and, you know, competing kickboxing as well as Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Like I thought everything revolved around my engine. Um, but really, you know, when you have those really challenging, uh, movement experiences for me, it was originally through finding and now finding yoga. Um, it's one of those situations where, you know, movement is simply something to prepare you for those deeper mental and spiritual challenges and the stress that you put on your body and on your mind in those physical activities are, are immediate lessons that you can take to those deeper realms. I love that. That's like so such a beautiful way of explaining that and articulating it. Uh, I feel the same way. I I think of movement as kind of the matrix or the kind of the stuff, the web that is the connector for all these facets in our life. And it's why I'm such a big proponent on like exploring like all types of movement possible and not limiting yourself to a small, tiny sliver of what's out there. Um, because I've experienced the same thing. It's, yes. um, when I when I open up and challenge myself and allow myself to be the nincompoop or the newbie and then also allow myself to be incredibly like mm. proficient at something – or, you know, um, there's just so many ways to play with it. And and every modality I've played with and every perspective I've taken while working with all the modalities uh, has, has always offered not only wisdom I expected, but also wisdom that seemed to kind of come out of nowhere that fit right into what I was looking to solve in other areas of my life. Well, yeah, that's that's amazing. You highlighted something really interesting there. I think the the experience as a mover, both as the beginner and both as the advanced practitioner, and I think it's it's really interesting given the state of the fitness industry nowadays. Um, mm-hmm. Because I don't know, I feel like they're two very different things. I feel like the experiences of beginner exists to humble somebody and you know to to taste that feeling of like you know um, like a like i'm drinking from a fire hydrant you know what i mean like everything's <laughs> so much and so crazy feeling of like i'm a beginner and you look up to the top of a mountain and you feel like okay i'm, I'm ready to climb this is going to be fun you know what i mean this is this is uh what i could be the potential you know what i mean and mm-hmm. And now 
naturally my personality as someone who's much more of a perceiver really thrives on those things. Um, but there are also drawbacks of it. Like, you know, or, or, or let's, let's to backtrack a little bit, like an example where you're doing different workout every single day and, and, you know, it's variable and fun and creative or, you know, these classes that have music and light effects and all of that other stuff. I'm not saying this is bad. I'm saying that it's the experience of the beginner, but I think to your statement before, it also has to be balanced out with the experience as an experienced practitioner because there's an old quote by our uh, Harvey Pennick's little red book. He said, uh, the, the, the narrator said, Harvey had seen more balls hit uh, golf balls um, than anyone else who had ever lived. And I, I call crap on that. I'm like, surely someone has seen more balls hit than this dude. Mm-hmm. But then when you look deeper into it, it's like, he's seen more balls. Like he's, he's watched it. He's been mindful. He's been there. He's analyzed every element of the movement as an, as an experienced mover who has had hours doing the same thing. What you do is you unlock a level of mastery that a beginner can never appreciate. Mm -hmm. And you can push your mind to levels that are unattainable in the beginner experience, the shock of the beginner experience. So the problem that I see in fitness culture now is the situation where that that grinding, that consistency, that iron age of fitness where you just have to sit there and toil it is kind of being lost a little bit. And with that, we're losing our ability to be a master at something. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, it's hard because when you lose that experience, you lose the ability to truly be creative because yeah. you can only really be creative after you've mastered an element or, or of a system and then can relate it to an element of another system. Um, it's, it's, and it's sad to see. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up because I understand what you're saying about like the consistent practice and development of these skills and being willing to stay with it and work through it and, and deal with some of the trials there. Um, but I come at it from a different standpoint where I actually think a lot of the stuff, the language around fitness is all about the grind and the hustle and, and the toil so much so, you know, that I don't think there's a lot of, um, time or or energy spent on the benefits. I think we create a very dark picture of of what fitness feels like. Mm. And then for people coming in, they experience that and they're led to believe that's what's supposed to be all the time. And yeah, that is like a feels like a very self-destructive process, but at the same time saying, this is what you need to get the body you want. If you want to be flexible, you got to do like but you know, um, I think this has also been part of like my journey that I don't have to like suffer all the time. It doesn't have to be suffering just yeah. because it's hard work, you know? And I think if you're really coming at this as like not to achieve a goal, you know, not to beat your body into shape, but rather, you know, to be in a practice with yourself, you know, to to step into that time and that physical expression of movement as a way to just be in touch with who you are and what's going on and observe right and engage and 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 just like pay attention and like be okay with all the things that come up 
that's a very different experience. And, and, you know, I think that's actually part of why people don't really want to be in the practice, like the lifelong practice um, and, and putting in the consistency and the time with movement because I, and this is just my perception, but I wonder if we've, if we've sort of scared people off by making it this big, ugly, scary, depressing thing <laughs> and, and really not <laughs> allowed for that curiosity, right? That exploration. Um, and for me, what's also been essential is the element of creativity. I mean, that's, that's why I was so enamored with dance growing up. And, and then, you know, why in the training world, I really gravitated towards like Viper and Animal Flow because those were modalities that offered that. And as much as I loved just like lifting weights, because that was an mm-hmm. element I surprisingly enjoyed, like like what kind of energy it takes to yeah. express strength development. That's a really unique thing. Um, I'd also had access to all these other things, and so I could tap into that. It's, that's, it's interesting the way you put it. Like we've, we've created this, uh, the culture of grind uh, around fitness, and we've made it this really, this big bad monster that we kind of have to overcome. And, and I think, you know, what's, what's coming out to me is that um, – you know, we've we've left off the mindful element, the presence element. The 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 presence element seems to be the master key to creativity with movement. Yeah. And what we're saying is we're so fixated on the ideal or the the ideal body or my number or something else that we're forgetting living in the moment, where essentially all of the creativity exists. Um, I I I'm right on with that. Um, I'm also right on with a quote that uh, everyone says they're ready to do lion shit until it's time to actually do lion shit. Like I think a lot of people, you know, a lot of people, I mean, it it sucks, but like a lot of people talk a huge game and they say, okay, I am going to go out and yeah, I mean, I'm I'm unapologetic with this. Like, <laughs> like it's one of those ones where okay, I'm going to go out and I'm going to crush myself in in a physical activity, and it's like okay, uh, let's analyze this a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was sitting down. I remember I was I was leading up to a kickboxing fight once, and I was absolutely exhausted. And I was at university, and the person sitting next to me was actually a bodybuilder. Um, and you know, I was sitting down, you know, bitching to them about, you know, the training session I had tonight and they turned around to me and said, video record yourself training. And I was like, why? And they go, just watch it. And I'm telling you, when I sparred that night, I thought I was sparring at lightning speed. I Mm. thought I was like, man, I am, I am flying. I am untouchable. I'm like Floyd Mayweather. You know what (laughs) I mean? I'm just, I'm doing crazy. And then I looked at the video after the session. And it was terrible. <laughs> My output was shocking. Oh. And I, I looked at that video and I was like, that doesn't look like me. My perception of the lion stuff that I was doing, my output was terrible. And it was because of my ego and my attachment to performance as opposed to attachment, uh, well, no attachment at all, as opposed to just doing it because it's the best expression I feel of myself. Mm. And so when I stepped back and said, okay, like, Maybe to be able to do the lion shit, to be able to really go in and give it my all, I have to build up a foundation that exceeds where my body is currently at. So I have to humble myself. I have to sit back and say, okay, I've got no business running a 
timed 5K unless I can run three runs a week for 60 minutes at, without breaking at a pace that's comfortable, not pulling up like I've been shot by an elephant gun the next day. Like, like that's, that's the foundation that then allows you to do the high output activity. And that element of humbling, I think, where we're at right now, it's, it's not present. I think everyone wants to get there straight away. And I think that idea of presence and creativity that you just mentioned makes the things that we perceive as the grind actually enjoyable to do. You know, another just thought just kind of came up for me because I, I'm in this dialogue of the difference between discomfort and pain all the time. And I realize people are a lot more comfortable with pain than they are than they are with discomfort. And the, the true mark of being able to have presence with something is to be willing to engage with the discomfort because, you know, if you're really present, like, most things don't show up as pain. I think pain tends to show up when we've been totally blindly like moving along with something and not paying attention, not having presence. It's like that last possible signal, right, so that you finally wake up. Um, but we're usually so blinded to the discomfort in the process that the only stimulus we're interacting with is pain. And so we use pain yes. kind of to regulate and understand what's happening with us, um, both physically and then in other places too, whether it's professionally or in relationships. Uh, and I, I observe this in myself too. Like it takes a massive amount of presence and a massive amount of integrity to be willing to show up for the discomfort. Um, and I don't know if that's just a human mm. thing or if that's like contextual within our society because everything's so skewed towards like the extremes all the time, right? With all the instantaneous yes. nature of our world and then the competition and the pressure um, I, th I think there's an element where we forget how to be in the middle. Well, you that's probably the best way I've heard it explained because like it's like, you know, we're existing on poles. When you say to somebody, reach towards a position of discomfort, I mean, when, I, when I'm teaching yoga at the moment, my, my ideal posture or the, the information that I want to impart on the people that are taking the class is – the ideal position isn't a position that you're completely getting burned or you're completely, you know, falling apart or that you think you can barely hold it. It's a position that you can keep your breath steady, your mind focused, that's challenging you like just enough to keep them in the sweet spot. Yep. You know, there's like a, there's like a yellow zone, uh, an amber zone and a red zone. If you're in the red, red zone, you're done. You want to be in that little amber zone, the one that pushes you just enough, but you can stay consistent. And it's funny because you've got a culture of fear on either side of the spectrum. You know, the ones that are existing too much in their comfort zone don't want to find that position of discomfort because it's like, okay, like I've... Uh, it's attachment to performance. Like if I'm on, on that lower end of the, the, the spectrum of the, oh, I don't want to push to discomfort at all, is it because you're innately scared of discomfort and what it brings or are you innately scared of having a marker against your performance? Mm. And on the upper end of the spectrum, it's the same thing. Are you scared of finding that position of discomfort because you've got a marker against your performance or because you're scared of failure? Mm -hmm. And it comes down to a coach of mine used to say, everyone's the star of their own action movie in their own head. 
And yeah. everyone thinks they're this, you know, unbeatable badass. And no matter how much you try to deny it, everyone thinks it. <laughs> so, yeah. And if you don't, then I want to meet you and talk about why. <laughs> but like, it's one of those ones where everyone thinks they're this unbeatable badass. And when you have a position where you're attached to performance or a real marker of performance, what ends up happening is it, it shatters those self-beliefs. And if that person's not got a self-belief that's a little deeper, then their time or their number or how many poses they can hit or how long they can hold it for, we got a problem, you know what I mean? Like we, we have a situation where the, the engaging in the practice itself is going to be destructive to that person's uh, self-image, not building up that person's self-image, which is not what we want. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting um, because like another factor I've been talking a lot is I build out this um, – this concept of intuitive movement and I'm, and I'm working on, you know, offering it in all sorts of realms is I, I talk a lot about the sense of confidence, right? And it, I think that's exactly what you're hitting on mm. is that when you have like a fluency with movement, it's like a direct correlation with personal confidence. And so you're either on one end mm. or the other of the spectrum. Like most people aren't in between. And if you're confident with yourself as a movement, you never want to go back or you never want to think you're in the other camp, right? So any any like little bit you slide on that spectrum feels like you're backsliding, even though that's not true. And so that, that can be a terrifying place. And so avoidance at all costs. But then somebody who's trying to make their way up to the other mm-hmm. end towards confidence, sometimes what that slide that sliding up does when you're hitting those discomforts is it actually just creates that feedback loop of I'm bad, I'm awful, like this isn't working, this is why I suck. And, um, and that's a tricky place to be. It's it's very interesting because you know this is this is there there are many realms that that this exists in you know and I feel like with regards to physical performance like like it's it's interesting coming from the position of like an amateur athlete where your performance you essentially live and die off and in MMA the consequences are the greatest you know what I mean if you if you perform low you get your head punched in. You know, now it's a situation as like someone who movement takes a different role in my life where it's like, okay, why attach to that performance? Like, like what's, what is it, what does it serve me to do to attach to, you know, whether my hamstrings felt a little tighter today when I was going through a forward fold or whether I gassed out a little early on one of my rounds, like what, what purpose does it serve for me as a person who's only getting older, who's going to have more and more responsibility dumped on their plate as I age? What does it serve to attach to that performance marker? Hmm. Yeah, you know, like, like I don't know. Well, I would ask you, like, what, 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 what do you think? There is the the symptom that we're experiencing. Is it the fact that? physical activity is often the only thing we can really control in our lives and people are just gripping for that as a sense of, oh, you know, I just need this or is it something else? Is it something deeper? Is it an ego thing? Is it a, what do you think? Well, I actually, I think movement is the fundamental language um, that connects us all. It connects us Mm. all as human beings, like culturally ethnically, globally, and then it also, like, interspecies, like, 
and like uh, inner organism. I, I, I see movement as sort of like the one thing we're registering information from before anything else has happened, whether we're aware of it or not. And so that is why, and I, and I don't think most of us are aware of this, it's so important to perform. Right. And, and when we're executing movements intentionally for them to look good or for us to have expertise and why that fear of that performance or that execution not being perfect or the best it can be is so tantamount. I think it's an interesting disconnect because when we're when we start engaging with our physicality purposely, we're especially aware of it, but we're not sure why. <laughs> but it is fundamentally mm. a part of how we're always interacting with our world, with other people, with other beings in our life. And, um, you know, I, I always am seeking to unravel this idea of performance for myself because a practice I started this last year is I, I rent... Um, an empty studio for myself every week and I have it for two hours and the idea is like that's my space to move however I want or need and do whatever I need to do with my body or myself in that time and sometimes it involves dancing sometimes it involves you know doing some FRC stuff to mobilize myself sometimes I'm just actually laying down the whole time listening to music but what I've observed is there, there's like the times where I get really interested in just like some freeform movement and immediately there's this voice in my head that comes in and has judgments that's like interrogating me like who do you think you are doing this this looks stupid you look ridiculous like why why are you doing this you don't have authority here and I I watch that come in and it's like well where did that come from because I'm here by myself no one's watching me so why do I care um and it's been like an interesting exercise for myself to like notice that voice coming up and to push it aside and to continue. Mm -hmm. And I've even like made myself post those videos where I would say uh, perfectionist performance driven mm -hmm. Marie does not want people to see that. And yet people respond with like, wow, that was incredible. You know, and it's almost like yeah. when, when you put aside that need to perform and you just let yourself move how you really feel like it, like, and just let that authenticity come through, people get to see a level of you and like that unique energy that you bring both um, as a person, as a presence, um, as a voice, as, uh, as somebody expressing something and they really connect with it. Um, but I think that that's something easier mm. done when we're, you know, living off the land, hunting and gathering, climbing up trees, you know, like in our whole lives revol revolve around living in our bodies. And when we don't live in our bodies anymore, but we live in our heads and in our devices and, you know, smartphones and computers, trying to come back into the body, like, mm. we've de-evolved we've de from that place. We don't know how to do it anymore. Well, yeah, movement's taken a different context. It's interesting, like, I'm, you know, I'm probably going to turn some people very off by mentioning Jordan Peterson stuff, but he's done a lot of, a lot of his lecturing and whatnot is, is around uh, the, the taking on of responsibility and whatnot. But one, one thing that, that he mentioned in a, in a series of his lectures was about 
um, lobsters and how you shoot them with serotonin and, you know, they, they puff up and they're much more willing to engage in fights. Um, essentially, physicality has been uh, essentially the, the, the research that was there was, was one element of an argument to say that the dominance hierarchies have been a part of our common evolutionary uh, progression to where we are now for roughly over 300 million years. Um, so we exist to be in a dominance. It's one of the reasons why sports are so comp- – like since moving here, I thought people were sports fanatics in Australia, people in the US with particularly college football. I, I, I'm even on it, you know what I mean? I'm, <laughs> I'm at the office, you know, playing fantasy. It's like – it's unreal. It's like, you know, the 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 – the tribalism around it and and it's it's crazy and it's awesome but it also represents the shortest and most dynamic and most you know exciting cycle of that dominance hierarchy that exists in our society this athlete is incredibly competent in what they do they've dedicated all of their time to competence, which our dominance hierarchy is based on, and then that person puts it all on the line in a in a time constrained game that's very physical and exciting to watch. As if people aren't going to love that stuff. Mm. And it's it's interesting with regards to you know taking that back to movement and the way that we would move in Paleolithic times. Our ability as movement movers, excuse me, were directly linked to our survival capacity which then threw us to the top of the dominance hierarchy. However, now we're in a position where society is moving away from care of people towards care of stuff. Society is moving away from small community-based things to much more, you know, globalised, structured uh, all, all of that kind of thing. We're, we're moving away from the physical and into the more mental and device-based. And so movement has been conditioned to be a part of a dominance hierarchy for God knows how many generations. And we're in a position now where moving is taking a completely different context, but we're still subject to those same evolutionary drivers. And so my question at the end of it is, if, if people are worried about performing or there's an ego around performing for movement, who are we performing for? Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how well you move. Mm-hmm. Like I know, you know, people who can barely touch their knees in a forward bend that have reached, you know, the, the, the top of what would be considered to a dominance hierarchy in today's sense with regards to, you know, sadly, it's all around material wealth. Um, so what does that mean for movement? You yeah. know, how do we contextualise it in today's culture? That's a fascinating um, way to present that because I agree. I think, I think there's a lot of things. Um, I think even the dominance hierarchy is breaking down right now, right? Like we've, a lot of the things that allowed us to get to this point are no longer supported for a variety of reasons. And even movement, right? It doesn't serve the same purpose. Um, So like, what is our relationship to it? And I think we're in a really interesting time and space where we can kind of, Take some time to figure that out. And and more importantly, 
you know, I, I, this is like one of my passions. I want people to feel the freedom to figure out what it means to them and how they want to interact with it personally, right? Versus feeling like there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. Mm. Is there a place for the right or wrong way? What do you mean? So, so where I take the right and wrong way is right and wrong for me is only confined to the biomechanical realm. So I feel in yoga, for example, if we're doing a specific pose, so let's say we go, let's say we go side angle pose, for example, it requires a lot of external rotation in your front leg. It requires, you know, an ability to, for you to rotate your torso quite excessively and it requires your ability to do that under a certain amount of extension as well. You can't be sort of hunched or flexed forward. And for me, I look at that pose and say, okay, that's a lead up to much more demanding poses, whether it's a half moon pose or a bound half moon or a bound variation of a side angle pose. And so for me, right and wrong there would be why progress when you've got the fundamental movement and you can break it down biomechanically and know that your body can handle that amount of stress, both in the movement position as well as from an endurance perspective. But once you've got that, then you have the ability to move forward uh, to more outwardly creative variants. Mm. My, my problem with the situation with the like people say, okay, this movement's right or wrong. No, it's based on situation. But at the same time, if you throw an incredibly advanced position or advanced very not ready for it, I believe there is an element of right and wrong there. And how do we make that starting point? Because sadly in our society, because movement's been detached from the dominance hierarchy, our physical baseline is shit. Uh, yeah. Like, like you, you look, you look at kids that were growing up in the '30s, and like, I'm pretty sure most like ten year olds growing up in the '30s could like suplex most thirty year olds. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like totally. right now, they'd be, you know, we'd we'd be in a problem. So I think what you I know, mean it's a situation where because by right and wrong is you know like there are certain assumptions of like what stuff you should be doing to get back into your body, right? I I need to be going to the gym X mm. amount of times. I need to be lifting weights. Or if you're trying to become more flexible uh. and mobile, like I need to be going to yoga class, right? And like you're saying, you actually like presented my point kind it's of methodology really based. Yeah, like if, if I, if you are inflexible, you know, a yoga class may be a challenging place to start because most yoga classes, unless Mm. you go to a specifically beginner's class, are going to have you expressing some positions that you do not have kind of the bedrock for, you know, and, but, you know, I, I, I also say that because, um, I just see a lot of people are afraid to try and to even know what those boundaries are to even get the signals. Um, And then because they're afraid to try and and kind of have their own autonomy, then they rely on others and situations to give them feedback. So they'll put themselves in a yoga class they're not quite ready for. Um, The instructor may come around Mm. a couple of times, but like, you know, and they'll be incredibly uh, uncomfortable, stressed out in that whole process. And, And maybe a Zumba class would have been a better place to start. 
right? If they'd only been yes. willing to just kind of go with, well, like what what's going to bring me a little bit more like enjoyment versus I should be going to yoga because everybody says it's amazing and, you know, it's supposed to help me. Interesting. So there's like a, there's an onus on the participant to manage their ego, to be open-minded, to try everything and know their limitations and to ask for help when required. Mm-hmm. And there's an onus on the professional to use the right language, to empower people, to not say things are right on wrong based on methodology, but based on where they exist in terms of like a biomechanical or structural readiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and then go from there. Pretty much. <laughs> cool. This is, this is, yeah, it's a, it's a great way to flesh it out. And you know, it's, it's hard because it's where do you start? You know, like it's, it's, it's difficult because starting from the fitness industry end, you know, you have to constantly educate the people providing the information. And because the information has been provided in such a way for many years, participants grow to expect that. Um, Versus if you try to change it on the participant end, then you're fighting, you know, drawback from the health and wellness industry, which forever in this realm has been the custodian of knowledge. Um, You know, I used to love when patients and clients would challenge my knowledge about an area and they would surprise you, you know, and and I think that needs to be welcomed a lot more. But it's it's hard when it comes to health because, I mean, I'm in business now and it's expected for your clients to, to push you and challenge you and I love that because it means that they're engaged in the process. But in health, it's forever been a hands-off, like you're the doctor or you're the physio or, you know, you're my trainer or, or healthcare professional. Like you are the custodian of knowledge. My job is to submit and do what you want. And I think it's, it's hard. I think the fitness industry has to be the bigger person when it comes to this and make the change from their end first and spend a generation educating uh, participants and clients so that then over time this can change. But it's hard because, you know, fear fills a lot of people's pockets. Yeah, and, you know, uh, the fitness industry thrives off of that model of being needed. Um, But, you know, I especially having ventured more into the online realm of stuff and, and watching all these different like streaming options pop up like the Cody app. And um, now like there's even like a dance class app for people who are pre-professional, you know, looking to like take from some very well-known people in that industry. And, you know, I just think we have so much accessible to us that like didn't exist 10 years ago. Um, the the whole cliche of the age of information, it's real. And like people now, we're actually in a time where I think the tides are starting to turn where like wellness and fitness aren't aren't sort of presenting that same trope that the Catholic Church did, right? We're like, we are the vessel for God. Um, <laughs> like we are no longer the vessel for knowing everything. I, you know, I, the, the longer I'm in this business of like movement and health and um you know, like trying to get people to empower themselves, the more I realize, like, I don't really know. Um, You know, like somebody's body knows, right? But I think 
my role is usually getting them yes. out of the way so that their body can start actually signaling them and, and showing them how to listen to those signals um, and, and then what those signals mean, how to interact with them when to address something, when to let something take its course. So they bring their autonomy back and so that they trust it. I think that's the important thing, to trust themselves and trust the innate wisdom within. I think that's, yeah, I, I, I have nothing to add. That's, that's perfectly said. Thank you. It's right on. <laughs> um, so actually, that's right on, mate. This has been super exciting rabbit hole, but I do have another question, uh, kind of based off of your experience. Yeah. Uh, what would you say has been the greatest gift that movement has given you? Mm, perspective. Ooh. And the reason why is movement shortened like like we were talking about before with sports uh it shortens the cycle like for a job uh you need to dedicate and toil 10 years to be a master at something if you're doing it 40 hours a week for other things you know like like things that are that are mental based learning a language or you know understanding a very complex sort of system like those things can take years and years i feel like in a sporting or physical realm you can see gains quite quickly you can yeah. change your body's shape and structure in 8 weeks you can you know you can see changes in in the smoothness of movement and flexibility and how you feel session by session so it's one of those things where I feel those elements of mental toughness and perspective have allowed me to say, okay, expand this experience out to the rest of my life or other things in my life and you can achieve anything. Yeah. No, I love that. I, I feel the same way. I think um, for me, movements always catalyzed any process. And like if I allow myself to be present mm. with movement when I'm going through something in another aspect of my life, it'll give me those answers that I'm seeking or give me clarity where there was confusion and, and suddenly I'm able to like take a leap where I would have had to take several steps. Right on. I love that. That's such a beautiful gift. Thanks for sharing that with us. Oh, thank you, mate. Thank you for sharing yours. <laughs> so um, before we wrap this up, uh, I'd love to uh, have you share any final thoughts with our audience, uh, last words of wisdom, anything pertaining to movement or something that has or hasn't come up in our conversation today. I think to characterize movement in anyone's life or, or anything in everyone's life. I'm, I'm very big into like psychology, spirituality, very interested in mythology. One of the things that has jumped out at me over the last year is the idea of king warrior magician lover. So I know it sounds completely fruity right now, but like let's expand on it. Mm-hmm. So any, any, like there, there are four archetypes that essentially exist 
within everybody. And I think you can extrapolate it out to any experience as well. Um, this is not my own concept. This is a concept that I read. Um, I think the book's by uh, Robert Moore and Douglas Gillette, a King Warrior Magician. I'm a fantastic read. Um, essentially, the idea is that the king or the queen provides order out of chaos and fertility in the form of encouraging others and growing a community. The warrior is all about dedicating whatever you do to a higher purpose and being actionable. The magician is all about searching for deeper knowledge and true transformation through sacred space. And then the lover is about being present um, in terms of your own mind and becoming connectable, not just to the world, but to other people. And I think if you're missing any element of that equation, it's going to be it's going to be tough to reconcile uh, in your life. So if we take the example of movement and extrapolate it out, mm-hmm. I think movement nowadays is very much that warrior quality, that sort of actionable, I'm going at it, I'm going to attack it, I'm going to grind it out. It's the deep, dark place. But at the same time, it's dedicated to, to selfishness or I want to gain this because, you know, I want to be X or I want X level of performance. It's not, it's not dedicated to a deeper purpose necessarily. And I think if you can, as a warrior, dedicate something to a deeper purpose, whether it's, you know, the idea of this is going to benefit my ability to live a little longer and support my family or whether this is, you know, because of this deep, profound respect for the bag of meat that you've been given, you know what I mean, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um you know, the magician quality I feel has been lost a little as well. People are grinding it out, just going going to the gym and just hitting it as opposed to saying, okay, like deep understanding of the movements that I'm that I'm uh, doing or the, the different sort of physical activity vectors that I'm undertaking, really try to sort of sit down and be a forever student with it. Um, the king is all about um, order out of chaos and, and fertility. And essentially, if we take a studious approach using that sort of magician mindset, as well as the warrior mindset of actionable, like being actionable, why not give back? Why not search out a situation where you could teach once a week? Why not search out a situation where you could get a group of friends and go to a park and and show them some stuff. Like even though you're a novice or like someone who's getting into it, like start to take those leaderships that even if it's just encouraging someone in class, don't go into the gym, put your hoodie on and walk down, like throw a high five out, encourage people, you know? And if you wanted to go take a leadership role in terms of an instructor, your job is to take this incredibly complex thing of movement and break it down in in bite-sized chunks for people to sort of uh, you know, get a grasp of slowly and slowly. And I think then the next thing, which is what you talked about with, with mindfulness is, is the lover. We use, we lose that ability to see beauty in every little movement that we do. And, and, you know, it, it kind of, you know, to me, it hurts a little bit, you know, going, let's say you could teach like a really basic class and people say, Oh, like I wanted to be challenged more. And it's like, well, you could have found challenge in that, but you weren't present enough. Like 
find those situations where you can see beauty in the most basic and repetitious things. And on top of that, like then get creative once you gain mastery. And I think if you take all of that um, and and let those four things guide your movement experience, you're going to have something where you're constantly actionable, you're attaching to deeper elements of it, you're leading and, and inspiring and helping others from a genuine place. And on top of that, you're able to see beauty in every single workout that you do, whatever it is. Um, that's sort of the last thing. Um, and the other thing is like transformative space. And I think with regards to particularly the magician quality, there's a lot of things that we see as transformative in our society that are really empty um, and I think a lot of those things are, oh, okay, I'm going to be really happy when I'm, I'm rolling a 6% body fat or I'm going to be really happy when I hit that jump to handstand or really happy when I get to, you know, Sukta Komasana or something like that. If you approach movement based on performance as transformation, you'll find emptiness. True transformation happens when the movement practice that you have represents something that's a lot deeper than its physical or biomechanical elements or even the space that you move in. It has to be something, has to be something deeper. Um, mm. That would be kind of the closing statement there. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love that. That's probably one of the best things I've ever heard. <laughs> um, and the irony. Hey, mate, it's not me. I'm just, I'm just reading this stuff and spitting it out in a, in a funny accent. So I'm, I'm, I'm lucky. <laughs> no, to, I think, I think you're. <laughs> I'm lucky to, lucky to have read it all. Yeah. No, I think your ability to take that and transpose it, like, cause you said, I'm going to use this for movement in particular. Um, you did that in such a beautiful way. And I, I know I resonate a lot with that. I know. Just listening to him, like, yeah, I'm interested in the space the magician and the lover hold because I see those spaces as not n- not really being that available for every, an everyday person, um, especially, like, outside of big cities like New York or L.A. Uh, so yes. an irony of ironies, like, I, I've been playing around with some tarot just kind of for fun, and my card today was actually the magician. Nice. So, <laughs> um yeah fantastic you know and it's and it's interesting because you know you can often look at any situation through the lens of those four archetypes and see what you're missing out and for me a a perfect example was you know in my mma times i was very much the warrior very much the magician very much you know trying to take on a king role but I wasn't enjoying the everyday of it and because of that I was unrelatable to the people that I was trying to share information with and have a training experience with and I think you know that hurt my experience and it hurt the other people that I was you know training with I think we could have developed a lot better of a bond if I would have been more mature um and you know I take the example of, of, you know, let's say my, my current situation with, with yoga, it was like, okay, I, I need to dedicate time to study it. I need to dedicate, you know, I'm, it's an intrinsic activity. So innately you're pushed towards the the sort of lover zone. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I have a desire to lead people and sort of, you know, not so much lead as in tell you what to do, but just, you know, instruct a class and let people just play with that. 
but I was missing that actionable quality. I, I really dropped off because it was so intrinsically focused and I just had to, you know, understand that practice and all is coming. I have to dedicate to my practice six days a week and not break because, you know, if you don't have that actionable quality, you can't, you can't achieve anything. Um, so there's, there's got to be a balance at all times and, you know, look at your circumstance and see which one's out of whack and really dive into it. That's, um, yeah. that's that, that would be my thing for anyone, anyone listening. I, I actually want to kind of create another little, uh, point to, to piggyback off that last statement of, um, you know, the, the, the dynamic shift when you went to yoga, all right. It sounds like you, like you said, it's more introspective. Mm. And, and I think a lot about the idea of like, you know, actually being authentic versus letting your ego get in the mix of things. And, you know, I, I noticed that when you come from the internal place, right, it, it allows the ego to take a back seat. And then, and then I think it's an easier place to like be able to come into contact with all these different aspects, all these different archetypes. Um, because if we come at it from the ego standpoint, mm. it gets very difficult to tap into, you know, those last two specifically, I think, um, the lover or the magician. And in some cases it may be more the, um, more like the king or the queen, right? Actually trying to service people. So I, I've noticed it's for interesting, myself, like, yeah, that that yeah. introspective uh, start, um, starting internal, right? Like with my mm. own curiosities and my own interests and my own like inspiration um, leads to a much easy, like a much more solid bedrock to be able to interplay all those different components. Like you, you, you peg something really interesting because it's something like didn't explain and I don't want it to like completely throw out another hour of discussion at you but essentially what I described there is what you know the the is described as the best examples of the archetype it, it exists like a pyramid that's the top of the pyramid at the bottom of the pyramid there's often an active and passive pole and you mentioned the warrior archetype of of uh, you know, if you're, if you're someone that doesn't have to dedicate your practice, you know, uh, to, to something else or, you know, that focused present quality that's always there, um, what ends up happening is you enter the realm of the shadow warrior, you know, you attach to ego, um, you attach to, you know, selfishness, you attach to things that really, don't allow you to be a good warrior. And what that realm is, is the realm of the masochist and the sadist. You end up going and working out because you want to punish yourself. Hmm. And then through, you know, the sadistic element of that archetype, because it's a polar, a polar opposite, um, you know, that sadisticness can end up uh, coming out in, you know, vitriolic bs on on social media or judging or being negative or you know disparaging other people's uh gains or other people's progress or anything it it really invites some nasty stuff and you know it's it's that's in one realm of it um you know and and you know we've all been guilty of of shadow poles of these but but the warrior that's particularly one that I think is is very present in in the fitness industry currently this idea of 
you know, okay, I'm going to masochistically push myself through, through, you know, a death march and then I'm going to say everyone else sucks um, for not doing it my way. Um, and it's, it's often because these people are, are out for selfishness or out for self-actualization as opposed to an actual experience of, of sharing or being actionable for something higher. That's, that's such a great way to, to expand the metaphor. Thank you for putting the time into to, to delve a little deeper on that one. Oh, it's fun. It's fun stuff. I could, I could, sadly, we could go all day. <laughs> right. <but. laughs> we'll just do another interview. Um, well, with that being said, I think that's a great place to leave our listeners for today. But Matthew, if there's any way that uh, people can get in touch with you for those who really resonate with who you are, how you show up, your thought process, all of that. Um, where can they find you? Best place. I'm trying to like streamline all of my social media at the moment, particularly because, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty swamped with that with my, my regular day job. But uh, the best place for that would be my Instagram. So uh, MRET, M-R-E-T, movement is the tag. Um, so, yeah, feel free to reach out on that or, you know, give us a like and share and, and that would be fantastic. Amazing. Great. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, Hope you guys enjoyed that. We're looking forward to having Matt back on with us soon. And take care. Bye-bye. Wasn't that an incredible conversation Yet again, I mean, every time I have another person on, I'm just wowed in a whole new way, and I hope you guys are too. So again, to contact Matt, if you're interested in speaking more directly with him, I'm going to leave all of his contact information in the show notes at the bottom to help guide you guys to him. And if you're interested in connecting with me directly, you can find me on Facebook, under the name Marie Janicek and on Instagram at Marie Janicek. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a review and make sure to share with your friends and family. In the meantime, I can't wait to connect with you all next week when we bring on our next guest. Until then, make sure to get out there and move.